Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is Unforgotten. Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law, and any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised, as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. And now for episode 29, Dina Hubbard. Hey guys, and welcome back. I have a joke. Ooh, really? Okay. What do you call a wreath full of $100 bills? A wreath full? Mm-hmm. Hmm, I don't know. A wreath of Franklin's. Oh my heavens, that is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) If I could high-five you right now, I would. I know. I cracked me up. Uh, Not I cracked me up. I did crack me up. I always crack me up. I know you do. A lot of times I'm the only one that cracks up. (laughs) My God, isn't that hilarious? And then people are just looking at me like, "Mm -hmm." Uh, the kids sit over there and they're like, please stop. Yeah. (laughs) If I don't get my daily fix of sellers, I kind of like... I go through withdrawals. <laughs> I know. I'm a better sidekick than I am a, a lead person. <laughs> Every Batman needs a Robin. But I'm a little partial to Superman. Well, yeah, I know you are. <laughs> Even though they're screwing it up over there in the movies. They really are messing with our superheroes. We don't even hardly watch them anymore. Any of the things that come out. I know. It's really disappointing. So, you know, if anybody hasn't yet gone and listened to our Unforgotten Talk with Olivia, please go listen because it's just awesome. We had a great time with Olivia. I looked at that, too. I don't know what happened with... I don't know what happened either because I know I looked at it and it was unchecked. I don't know. Maybe I accidentally checked it back. I thought it was unchecked, too. Like, I remember looking at it. I did not think that it was stolen subscription only. Sorry about that, guys. So have you seen, Stormy, that... There's a new podcast out on Daniela Vian. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was, I haven't got a chance to listen yet, but I did hear that. I'm kind of anxious to hear. I've listened to part one or the first episode. It's the Sound of Sirens podcast. It's a couple of guys out of Louisiana that are covering it. And they had Shauna Hayden on to do an interview. Oh, great. And so they did the first episode and then they did the second episode came out earlier this week. So today's the 27th. So a few days ago, I was listening through it and they said they had some technical difficulties and got interrupted when they were initially recording it. So it sounds like they kind of maybe put the episodes together. So it ends up being a really long episode. It's like over three hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm still working my way through the second episode. So a little side note, I was wrestling, leg wrestling with my son. (laughs) I'm not very tall. I like to say I'm tall. I say I'm 5'7". The kids dispute it. They're wrong. (laughs) I will stand by it. <laughs> and it doesn't help that my son is like almost 6'1". 
at 15. So he's a lot bigger than me. And then our youngest is almost as tall as I am at 11. Like, really, there's only a few inches left between her just passing me. Really? She's that tall already? (laughs) Yes, she is super tall. I guess I only see her sitting down most of the time when I've seen her. (laughs) I don't like to let her stand beside me because it really does make me look really small because I'm like, you are 11 and I should be a lot bigger than you. But they think because I'm their size, I can do all these things. And so my son was You're like, super mom. And I'm such a sucker because I'll say, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. No, no. Okay, fine. I'll do it. And they know that. Mm. So that's why I end up getting on the inner tube on the boat or leg wrestling. So my son, he wrestles in school and we goof off at the house and he was like, leg wrestle with me, mom. I did mm. against my, you know, better thoughts, I guess. And of course, he like flipped me immediately. Except for the first attempt on the flip, I didn't go all the way over. I landed on my neck and I didn't hear anything, but I felt something go wrong. And so I've just been dealing with it for like a little over a month, but it's been giving me headaches. I've had headaches every day. And finally, I woke up Monday and said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to the chiropractor. I can't. I'm not sleeping well. The headaches are killing me. So I went to the chiropractor, which actually was really awesome because it was the first time that I've ran into someone that I did not know personally that said, I, because I had my Moxie shirt on. Oh, and I was wondering how that I came just, up. <laughs> yes. I just was saying, oh, you know, I've got a friend, Olivia, Moxie's her business, and she works with the sheriff's office. She does forensic genealogy. You know, I do stuff with cold case. And he was like, cold case? The Alabama cold case and the podcast, that's yours? I'm like, yeah, that's mine. <laughs> So we were talking about that and he was asking, you know, oh, well, I bet you know about this case. and I bet you know about that case. So that was like pretty cool just because it's the first time that that's happened. That is pretty awesome. So I've been three times now, right? Turns out one of the vertebrae in my neck actually was twisted completely out of line and was kind of putting pressure on things. That's where the headaches were coming from. I have not had a headache since Monday. Yay. But I went three times this week just to keep getting everything back and not letting it you know, I guess fall back to where it was. And so he asked today, hey, did you see that Facebook Live? On some Facebook group is where he saw it, but it actually is on the Sound of Siren podcast. So as a follow-up to their episode, they did a live video interview with Shauna yesterday. Very cool. They kind of just followed up on things that Shauna and Julie wanted to clarify that, you know, they thought might have been a little bit confusing after they had listened to the whole thing, they would just want to make sure it was clear and answer questions that they had received. And then they also played audio from the night that Daniela went missing. They did? They did. Oh, sweet. They actually had to put it in a second video because they couldn't play it while they were live on Facebook. So it's uploaded in a separate posting for people to go listen to, to see what they think is being said. And so... It's really cool to see some of these things. I I say really cool. It's not really cool considering the circumstances, but I think it's a good thing to have maybe, you know, certain things about that case being brought to the public's attention that maybe they weren't necessarily aware of to begin with, or maybe have forgotten. Yeah. I think a lot of people probably knew there was audio from that night out there, but I don't know that a lot of people have necessarily heard it. Yeah. I think we've shared it like once or twice, haven't we? I'm not sure, actually. I don't remember if we have or not, but 
feel like we have. You know, we did the timeline, the uncovered case visualization for, but I'm not sure if the actual audio was on there. I think we talked about the audio because it had been talked about before. Yeah, maybe. But I don't know that we actually linked the actual audio. And it's interesting to see other people's take because, you know, obviously you can hear people talking and the audio is from just for context for people who aren't familiar with Daniela's case. We talked about her back in July and the mini that she went missing on July 17th of 2018. She had just bought that new to her car from one of those kind of buy here, pay here places. And it had a dealer installed GPS and she went out later that evening. Well, that GPS stops working that night after it had worked fine all day long. And the last time she was seen was in this gas station parking lot. The gas station was closed. Supposedly, she was following a guy named Denson White. He did not know she was following him. They'd been hanging out earlier in the night, but he was supposedly going home, according to what he's told people, and thought maybe she just got confused and thought he was going to the next place that everybody was supposed to be going. And so she flashes her headlights at him, and they pull over in this gas station parking lot, and she says she lost her phone. So supposedly, they're looking for it, and... He tries to call her on Facebook Messenger. And I guess it's one of those things, you know, where you say, I can't find my phone. Can you call me? Mm, Since he didn't have her phone number, he called her on Facebook Messenger. Well, something that I wasn't even aware of until this happened is that Facebook Messenger actually has like a voicemail option. If you don't answer, it'll It'll give you the option of leaving a message. Right. And so inadvertently, two voice messages got left. You can hear on the first one, there's a girl who we believe is Daniela based on what her friends and family have said. Then there's a guy, which we assume is Denson, since we know that the call's coming from his Facebook. And then there's a second one. There's a female who her friends and family seem to think might be a different female. And so there's just a little bit of conversation that happens in them. It's not a whole lot. And there's a lot of background noise because there's cars driving by. Right, yeah. So it's interesting to see what other people hear when they listen yeah. to it. Like, do they hear the same people, the same two people talking? Do they hear different voices? What do they think? And I'm not going to tell you guys what I think it no, says. No, I'd like to hear. I want to hear what other people think. I was just going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting, I think, to see kind of where everybody falls on their opinions on that. I agree. I agree. So that's over on their page. Again, that's the Sound of Sirens. Yeah. I think they're pretty new. I don't think they've been going for very long. I think Daniela's was episode seven, maybe. So just getting started, it sounds like. Wow. And I think, I'm not sure exactly how they got started. I need to go back because this is how I found them was through Daniela's podcast. I know one of the guys used to work in law enforcement. He was a police officer down in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure about the second one. So I'll probably go back and listen, you know, to kind of get some background on all of that. But yeah. I think they're doing a good job. So oh, great. Great. That's good to hear. It interesting. We have, we have some friends that are like coming up with some new podcasts. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Lexi with Uncovered. She's getting ready to, I think, just on. Not long. Well, Halloween, Halloween I think. Halloween is her. Um, she's going to do Walking the Line podcast, which I am anxious to hear. It'll be, I don't know what what exactly the, I mean, I know that it's true crime, but I'm curious to hear what kind of like what the format will sound like. I did tell her, look, in hindsight, if we could go back and redo this, 
we probably would have recorded yeah. several episodes, you know, to have in our pocket to help us when we, you know, get yeah. backed up on things. So don't rush yourself. You haven't started yet. Give yeah. yourself that cushion. And she was like, I'm trying. I'm just really That's excited. What, we don't know what we did. And too. we know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and then Jolyn it, with uh, Cold Case Advocacy, she's starting one in yep. 2024, which I think she's doing what you just suggested, my guess is. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. hers is scheduled a little further out and I think she's taking her time and doing it right but it'll be more on the advocacy thing I'm not sure uh, I think have you seen a name for hers yet it's called relentless the fight for cold case justice true crime advocacy podcast I like that that'll be good yeah that sounds great oh she does have a promo up uh, oh is it up mm-hmm. oh I didn't even see that so yeah, so I would check her promo out, and and uh, I know it's going to be great because she's just awesome. Oh, there was a, another big thing coming out of Heflin this week. Man, they are just rocking it oh, up yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I forgot yes. about that. I didn't really forget, but yeah. Yes, they had um, Captain Bonner, right? Yes, Caps over there Woo. just rocking these cold cases. Rocking it. Yeah. They also have the Heflin Police Department Criminal Investigation Unit. It has a Facebook page, yeah. so you can follow it to get kind of updates and things. Yeah. So he is still retired. He said that he keeps getting questions about whether or not he's back in law enforcement. And he's retired, but he had made promises to families before he retired that he really wanted to uphold. And he said that he really appreciated Heflin PD and the mayor and letting him continue to kind of work through those cases and getting those kind of wrapped up. Right. Yeah. He's just great anyway. <laughs> so he's a go-getter. He I mean, is. He really, he's not just like motivated, but he really cares about these families. So he does. So I pulled up the media release. This Jane Doe's body was found in February of 1990 by a logging crew. It said they were in a wooded area near Evans Bridge Road. The case had just been sitting there. She had never been identified. And then last year, they reopened the case, you know, with advancements in DNA and all of the right. technology upgrades and things. They wanted to try, you know, kind of one more time to see what they could do, if they could get some kind of answer. And so there was a lot of talk about whether or not it was Brenda Tucker. I actually had even sent him a name, Brenda K. Green. Right, yeah. was younger. She was a teenager, but since they had kind of a big age range for Jane Doe, I felt like she could probably still fall within the age range in the descriptions for the Doe. And so he mm. said he had already wiped that one off his list because he knew that one didn't match. I don't think anybody expected it to be a young woman from Georgia. Yeah. This week, they actually identified her as Clara Cop Reynolds. She was born in 1947 and went missing in late 1988 or early 1989. That she was last seen with a male friend, and they were supposed to be traveling to Florida. But other than that, they aren't releasing any details because they said it's an open investigation. They do have a suspect, and they do have evidence. And that's kind of why they're holding a lot of the circumstances surrounding her disappearance kind of close to the vest. Yeah. But if anybody has information about Clara Cop Reynolds, how she came to be in Heflin, reach out to Heflin Police Department, to Captain Bonner, or us, and get the information in. You never know what you know that they don't know. That is 100% true. You just never know. And we say that all the time because there's just nothing too small. I mean, no, it, it's amazing what they can glean from just one little tiny tidbit of information. 
Exactly. And we've said it before that something that may seem small or insignificant or maybe doesn't even make sense to you could be that like one little piece of a puzzle to an investigation that is sitting there looking at a big picture, but something's still missing. Right. Yep. So get it in. But great work, Heflin. Guys are kicking butt this year. I know. Well, last week, we were in the northwestern edge of Huntsville in Harvest in Madison County, and we intended to travel across town to share a second case, the case that we'll have today, actually, as well. However, just a couple hours before we sat down to record, we received copies of the proclamation file, something we wouldn't have had, I know, something we wouldn't have had at all had it not been for one of our followers, Bonnie. She wasn't far from the Department of Archives, and she made the trip to dig in and see what she could find. So I don't know if she has a crystal ball or if it was just divine intervention that sent her there, but we are incredibly thankful for whatever it was and for her efforts, because when we first started researching this case, there was very little information available at all. And she hit a fracking gold mine. I know. It was awesome. She found information on a few cases that we are really happy about. So, you know, we couldn't find a lot of personal information to share with you, but in addition to the records from Bonnie, we were able to locate a short obituary, her gravestone, and a few news articles. We also have a small bit of secondhand information from the person that actually brought the case to our attention. We want to send a thank you to her for sharing the case. The slim part of the news that was available, at least in the beginning when this case first happened, it covered the case as an accident and a hit and run. But it's not your run-of-the-mill hit and run accident at all. And it doesn't seem like it took them very long to um, change their mind. Change their mind. I mean, maybe within like a matter of days, actually. Yeah, yeah. I'm not even sure how they could have thought it first, knowing what we know. But you'll, you'll hear more. So today we're going to finish our trip and we're going to take you back to Madison County to the southeastern edge of Huntsville in the Big Cove area. This is the horrific and heartbreaking case of Dina Ann Hubbard. Dina Ann Hubbard was born January 25th of 1964 in Missouri to Hewlin and Lacey Hubbard. Lacey passed away on January 11, 2013, and just over three years later, Hewlin passed away on January 22nd, 2016 so we weren't able to speak with her parents. Dina did have two brothers, Travis and Shannon, and she also had three aunts and an uncle who lived near her parents' home. Now, I just want to preface the rest of what we're saying with, we have not talked to her family. Her case was not submitted to us by a family member. Right. And we do not reach out to family members directly unless we know that they're okay with that. Mm -hmm. But the information that we have is public information. And after looking at this case, we felt like we did really need to talk about it because... It seems like, like many others, with the advancements in technology and genealogy and all of these things, that it could be solved. I absolutely 100% feel that way. And I think you all will, too, when you hear all the details. Yes. From what we derive from the documents and articles, Dina was 23 years old at the time of her death. She was roughly 5'7 and 158 pounds with brown slash blonde hair. According to the accident report, her address was 3800 Governor's Drive, Room 38, Huntsville, which we believe is the Brooks Motel or was the Brooks Motel based on the newspaper articles that were printed at the time referring to it as Brooks Motel. Right. Since then, that name has changed, I think. Um, Yeah, it actually isn't even, I think it's a shopping center now. I think the building's actually even gone. 
Brooks Efficiencies in Apartments. Yeah, that's it. So that's what it was called. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what it was I called then. I think. I think it was just a like a commonly known name was the Brooks Motel. The actual official name was. I think so. Brooks Efficiencies in Apartments. Mm-hmm. Well, that would make sense. I think there's places like that where the name's kind of long. You know, right. Brooks Efficiencies in Apartments is a pretty long. Yeah. Name. Yeah. So, and I think it's probably one sense. of those motels that have like a little long, like long-term residence. Yeah, yeah. Like um, Extended Stay America or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Or microtail. Yeah. I think all of those have like the mm-hmm. the and, kitchen nits and all that in them. Right. You know? And I think, you know, some of the motels that maybe are less expensive, they end up doing kind of, I don't even think they set out to do that, but they end up kind of doing it. Turns that. out that way. Yeah. The accident report states that Dina was unemployed at the time of her death, but the death certificate lists her occupation as waitress, though it doesn't name a specific restaurant. It actually just says restaurant. Yeah. It is also possible she may have been a sex worker at the time, but at this point, we've not been able to confirm whether that was the case, and we don't have enough information to even really speculate on that. But it does play into victimology and people she may have been in contact with. So it's something that we wanted to mention. Like I said, we don't know enough to know whether this would have been a way of her supporting herself since we had one thing that said she was unemployed and another that said she worked as a waitress. Or maybe it was just an occasional thing. Or honestly, if it's even true, it may not even be true. Right. Yeah. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. No. It doesn't matter. Other than it might give people hints, you know, like who might know her. Right. If you ran into her, if you worked Mm -hmm. with her, if you were friends with her. Right. It helps to narrow down kind of an area that she would have been in. And, you know, like we said, people that she would have been in contact with on a regular basis. Exactly. Yeah. And that's basically all that we know about her background. Right. Which is sad, you know, and this is another one of those cases, you know, it's back in the 80s. So it's really hard to find information if, you know, there's so little to begin with. We couldn't even find a picture and that made me so sad. We're going to have to keep digging just in case. But yeah, that's really, that's unfortunate. So just a fair warning, I'm going to try not to be too descriptive about what happened with Dina, but kind of have to a little bit to explain the impact of what occurred. And if you have a hard time with this sort of thing, you might skip forward just a little bit so you don't hear all the details. I do think this is one of the more graphic and grim it is. That yeah, about. I agree. I agree. According to the news articles at the time, Dina was last seen leaving her uncle's home on Miller Lane around 7 p.m. on November 23rd of 1987. At the time, she was wearing a tan jacket, a white blouse, and dark pants. His home was approximately a mile north of where her body was found. Beyond this, no one has confirmed she was seen prior to being hit. It just other than I think in the newspaper article was the only reference. Yeah. The couple of articles that came out were the only references, I think, to anything that she was last seen wearing. Yeah, yeah. They didn't describe her that I recall in the articles either. And that was really kind of frustrating because you need to say, you know, she's got dark hair, mm-hmm. light hair. It said brown slash blonde, but that's a pretty wide range. So did you have dark brown hair, light brown hair, you know? Yeah. At least some kind of description so that anybody that might have seen her but didn't know who she was to say, oh, I did see her. Yeah. They have no idea what they're looking for right? as far as physical traits. And it sounded like just from the reports we got that she probably did have like medium length hair maybe. 
Mm -hmm. And that she did have brown hair, but like maybe it was like either partly dyed or growing out blonde by, I I can't remember how they referred to it, but it sounded like maybe it was just splotchy blonde, like growing out. Like mine when my roots get too long. (laughs) Yeah. And it's all silver. I look like a skunk. That's why I gave up bleaching. (laughs) I just feel like I can't do the do the coloring yeah. anymore <laughs> it just got, it got to be too much i'm like yeah let's be natural huh, i bought um hairspray paint basically the other day for when i can't yeah. get to the stylist uh, does it work i tried i haven't tried it yet because point. as soon as it came oh. in i had a hair appointment so oh. i'm waiting <laughs> all right well, you have to let me know at approximately 1 a.m. on November 23rd, a passerby driving northbound on U.S. 431 by Big Cove came upon a terrible scene after unfortunately hitting partial human remains, and he contacted authorities. When police arrived at the scene, they discovered the body of a young woman they believed had been the victim of a hit and run. Investigators believed that the woman had gotten partially caught underneath the truck when she was hit, as remains were found up to 1,800 feet away from the initial point of impact. While it was initially stated that there were no witnesses, it was later stated that the vehicle was potentially an 18-wheeler with a white cabin trailer. You know, even going back through, we talk about that there are discrepancies in newspaper Mm -hmm. articles. Yeah. There are discrepancies in official documents, too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It was said, you know, this she was found around 1 Mm a.m. I found another newspaper article later that said she was found shortly before midnight. But then when you go look at the accident report, and 1 a.m. would be November 24th. Right. Hold on to that. Because that That almost makes sense with it. It was wrong, right? Well, the 1 a.m. would make sense with the death certificate because the death certificate lists her date of death as November 24th. Right. Sorry. Yeah. But then the accident report lists the date and time as November 23rd at 1130. And then there's a subsequent report by SBI that lists the time as 1120, which would still put it on 1123. Right. So when we were looking at this and I kept seeing that she left her uncle's on the 23rd at 7, but then it was reported at 1 on the 23rd, I kept thinking, gosh, this is really confusing because that couldn't be possible. Unless she was seen at her uncle's on the 22nd and then found on the 23rd. Yeah, it did get a little confusing. But I'm still really kind of confused about it because it's really not clear when it was called in. The only thing that I can... There is one little block on the accident report that says it's towards the end and it says something about investigation, but it's kind of cut off on the paper. So you can't really see what the title of that section is. Mm -hmm. And it does say 104. Um, and then there's a 1.30. And I think that's actually like what time maybe some of the investigators arrived on the scene. Right. Yeah. But I'm not sure about that. But the 11.30 slash 11.20, whatever, on the 23rd, that seems more in line with everything else until you look at the death certificate, which says the 24th. So then you're like, yeah, well, and I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I It was agree. late at night. Mm-hmm. And that's really kind of all we know. Yeah. And I'm sure it was dark, like really. Oh, yeah. And I don't mean that in the obvious, like, oh, it was dark because it was not. Time of year even. Yeah. And it's in the 80s. It's Mm -hmm. on kind of a country road. When you go back on the Google timeline and go back even. To 1980s. I think the clearest picture you can get, like kind of zoomed in, is like the early 90s. Yeah. There's not a lot in that area. So I'm sure there weren't a lot of street lights. Right. So I'm thinking it's probably even darker at that point than it would be, say, if you were driving at, you know, 1130 in Birmingham on one of the main roads where it's like almost like daytime. 
So the thing that gets me about all this, so these are some of the discrepancies that caught my attention too. The box that says 104, I was just looking at it, is time police were notified, which means probably that is when or very shortly after when the driver came upon it. Okay. So that, okay, that makes sense. I couldn't read it. It does make me wonder. Yeah. It does make me wonder, though, you know, if somebody knew more than that, because... That's a very specific time for a time of accident, because mm-hmm. if they, didn't, well, they weren't notified until 104... Yeah. And 104 would be like probably the 911 call. Which I guess maybe, maybe you could... So that would from, be specific. Yeah, and body yeah. temperature. Well, and that's what I was thinking. I was wondering like if that, they really but, know that it happened, you know, like a couple hours earlier somehow. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that caught my attention, and I don't know if you saw this, but it was like this one little thing. I was trying to read some of the boxes because, you know, we have copies and they're not very clear. But there is a box and I'm probably not going to find it right now. But it's talking about the vehicle that hit her. Mm -hmm. They don't know. Obviously, they don't know much about it. Mm -hmm. But it marks one as the number of occupants. And I'm like, how would they Oh, well, maybe that's just an assumption. Maybe. Yeah, but that, how can they assume that? I mean, I'm I'm sure it probably is. It's probably but it kind of caught my attention because of all the other discrepancies. Well, is it one time. of those things where just thinking about the reports, you know, they have categories and instead of putting in an actual number, the one is actually like a code for something. Yeah. You know it, what I'm talking that about? That is yeah, it wasn't that though. Uh, it says occupants in unit one. <laughs> I mean, it could be, but I, it, that doesn't sound like a code to me. They have other ones, you know, that like above it right. that are really, you know, you can tell that that's what they are. But I don't know. I, it caught my attention because of that, because of the combination of that, the discrepancy and whether it was 1130 mm-hmm. or one o'clock or whatever. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, initially they didn't have a witness, but then there was somebody that said they saw the truck. You know, they don't yeah. know if it was that yeah. truck, but they know there was a truck there. And the truck okay. was parked along the highways that they saw. Where so look- exactly, we don't know. But I'm looking at that box that you're talking about, and it mm-hmm. says um, the speed limit in that area was 55, but mm-hmm. it has nothing for the estimated speed because they wouldn't know. Damage severity has not disabled. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now that I, now there's I'm like disabled, not disabled. Yeah. I'm which not I really sure what that top one is. It wouldn't be disabled but, because it left the scene. Yeah. Right. It's not there. Vehicle towed away, no. And then it says occupants at or in unit, in unit yeah, I, I think one. it says in, but yeah. So my guess, because if you look at the top where it says defects, contributing defects or whatever, it says unknown. Mm-hmm. But I wonder why they wouldn't say unknown. Yeah. Or leave um, it blank because the they left other ones blank. Yeah. Yeah. So that um, that is interesting. Yeah. yeah. Total injuries to to unit, which I would assume like in an accident, it was how many people are in the vehicle that were injured. Right. But it's blank. And it's blank. So I just, yeah. I don't know, it caught my attention. I thought yeah, it was kind of that, interesting that they agreed. would do that. Like, mm-hmm. did somebody actually see the truck in motion? Mm-hmm. They didn't, maybe they didn't know it was the truck, but did they see the white truck in motion? Right. I don't know. So it, it's interesting, you know, you just, it's hard to, hard to tell how to decipher some of these things sometimes, you know, it could just be human error or, you know. 
And when you go to the actual narrative at the bottom of that initial report, well, it's kind of in the middle of the second page. Mm -hmm. It says pedestrian was in northbound lane of U.S. 431. It was struck by an unknown vehicle. Right. Vehicle number one struck the pedestrian and drugger for approximately 1,800 feet. The body was struck at least one other time by another vehicle. Right. So they say, you know, from the beginning, it's an unknown vehicle. So I'm I'm with you kind of there. How would they know how many people were? I guess that's just an assumption. Like, you know, there's got to be at least one because somebody's driving. Yeah. So maybe that was why they put it in there as opposed to putting, they couldn't put zero, obviously, because it couldn't drive itself. But but it does make you kind of wonder. Yeah. It makes you go, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing is, is you can speculate on whether she was standing in the road, she was pushing into the road, she was running into the road, or whether she was in the vehicle and exited the vehicle. Right. Yep. You know, if if she was in the vehicle, likely there was only one other person. Because this isn't um, close to the Brooks Motel that's listed. No, it's, uh, gosh, I don't even remember how many. Just to- I mean, It's like seven miles from Huntsville, which is... So it's probably about six miles from our motel or, yeah, I think it's about 13 right. miles, 21 minutes. Oh, is it 13? Okay. I was thinking it was mm-hmm. like seven for some reason. To the 3,800 governor's drop. Yeah. To that's the it. rough estimate based on the oh, um, sorry. scene, accident I said, scene. I was thinking it was south. You know, that's right. Yeah. The accident scene was actually, it's probably close to seven miles from the city, but then it's on the other side of the city. It's on the west side, not the east side. I actually marked the spots from the map on the, the Google map and measured it. And then I did the 1530 that, or 1540, whatever it was, to see how much difference that was, which put it down closer to where the Publix is. Mm-hmm. And then the 1800 feet is like way past it. <laughs> like, uh, it was like, really, fo- I just measured like, it. There's like, no I didn't even put the- square feet. <laughs> I just went a mile. I took where they said it was a mile from Miller Lane, mm-hmm. measured a mile back. That yeah. was- Pretty accurate. That's what I did originally. And then yeah. just tried, went from there. Okay, so it says 10 miles. Sorry, I was three miles off. Yeah, um, okay. So 10 miles, 15 minutes. So yeah. it's not, for somebody to have been walking, that's a, a pretty long way, especially when you consider that she was last seen at 7.30ish at her uncle's house on Miller yeah. Lane, which was a mile away. Right. So you know she was already in that area. So it doesn't really make sense. She would have walked back to her room no. at the Brooks. And then no. came back. So, so this, that, there's where was she until this happened? And was somebody did somebody give her a ride as opposed mm-hmm. to her walking? Yep. Another discrepancy, which may or may not matter, but it does change the way somebody looks. Is that the mm-hmm. autopsy report listed her at 158 pounds, but the SBI report listed her at 180. Yeah. So I wonder if one is an estimate. I'm assuming that the SBI maybe she. I still don't know how with the condition she was in, how they would know that. I'm not sure either. So I don't know where that weight would have came from. I mean, I guess driver's license. They had her driver's license. Well, that's, I was thinking maybe that's where SBI's stuff came from was they would be able to pull her driver's license. Yeah. I don't know. But maybe, maybe that was a a rough estimate on the autopsy report. Could be. I mean, that can make a big difference though in how somebody looks. Right. Yeah. 180 is a big difference. 30, 30 pounds. Due to the severity of the injuries, it took eight hours for authorities to identify the victim and publicly confirm that the victim was indeed Dina Hubbard. And you can imagine the size of a truck like this hitting 
a pedestrian, how horrible that scene must have been. Mm-hmm. And if they were traveling at the 55 mile an hour speed limit. Mm-hmm. Assuming I mean, that it really was a big pedestrian. Big truck, even if it wasn't really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure that the car that was passing through probably was going that fast. Articles were pretty inconsistent in describing where Dina made impact with the truck, so kind of what we were talking about. But they all described this within approximately the same one-mile area, you know, northbound stretch of US-431. With some help from the person who submitted the case and some deduction regarding the locations and a hint from one of the reports, all of the things that we were just <laughs> talking about. And the Secretary about. of State. and Yeah, <laughs> lots of information. So lots of input on this. We could kind of get a pretty close idea. You're familiar with this area. You've lived in the area and all of that. And so we're trying to figure out exactly how things line up because we had talked to you before and it looks like in the accident report, it's kind of like flipped around. Yeah, it appeared that way to me too. Even um, when I showed someone else familiar with the area, I had to basically flip the paper around for them to understand where it was coming from. If you can tell us what you remember as far as where the location um, of everything was at the time, and then also where, because it doesn't, we know there was a reference to a tractor trailer being seen on the side of the road, but there's actually no reference in any of the records that I saw anyway to where in relation to the accident scene, that tractor trailer was actually seen. Right. So from what I was told, now the location of the tractor trailer, I mean, of course, I didn't see it sitting there. So from what I was told, it was parked directly in front of the old cotton gin which would be heading north on, it would be heading north on Highway 431. There was the old cotton gin on that corner and two mobile homes. So where Chick-fil-A so, is now is where, like the Chick-fil-A in that no, gas station, uh, is that where the cotton gin was? No, ma'am, on the other side of the old 431 mark. Okay, so where the Publix, okay, so where the Publix is, that's yeah. where the actual cotton gin was. Where the, yeah, it's the public shopping center, and then there's like a Regions Bank and McDonald's. So right in that vicinity, there was an old, it was an abandoned cotton gin, and then there were two mobile homes. Okay. And so from what I was told, the tractor trailer was sitting directly in front of that area. Oh, wow. Heading north of 431. Okay, so it would have been sitting in front of that and then headed back towards like where Arby's and all of that is now. Okay. Exactly. So, from my recollection, you could see the stains in the road for years. I mean, there was a lot of development after that. I believe it was a year after that, Robert um, Trent Jones bought a bunch of land behind that area and started the golf course. And then, of course, they started the subdivisions of Hampton Cove and it was like 991 times. And so, it just boomed right after that area. So, literally, there was nothing right in that vicinity except for that cotton mill. And those two mobile homes and a gas station that was across the road. It was like diagonally across the road, heading south on 431. Yeah, so there was basically nothing back then. So the stains, from my recall, because I was a little girl, started there in front of the cotton gin and were sporadic between there and heading north on 431. The final one was directly in front of the Arby's. 
And I think I told you the story, the way I remember it being there was the biggest thing. In the early 90s, they built a Dairy Queen there. And to turn in, you literally turn right at the stain into the entry. It's a very narrow entry for a fast food restaurant. Two cars is all that could get through there. And they only have one entry. And so you literally had to drive over the stain to turn into Dairy Queen. And um, you could see y'all for years until, you know, that area boomed and then they paved over it. And I'm not sure how much the resting spot mattered as much as the impact spot. And that's the one that seems to be, to me, the most up in the air, I think. So I don't know. I don't know what you think about that. But I think as far as the initial impact, I feel pretty okay, I guess, or certain with the intersection mm-hmm. at 431 slash old highway 431 yeah somewhere in that area because that's what yeah. was referenced in a lot of the reports it's also when you look at the accident report it shows the turning lane from mm-hmm. old highway 43 onto 431 so i feel like it's probably right there not far from that yeah. but as far as exactly how far Where? she was drugged yeah. i'm not sure on that because yeah it's just kind of all over the place. Right. Well, and I guess the idea too is if it wasn't the person in the truck that caused a purposeful exit from the truck, then why was she out there? Why was she out there nude? Because one of the reports comments about the initial blood stain Mm -hmm. impact. So I feel like they had to have a good idea of where the initial impact was. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. Yeah. You know, there was some talk about Dina's parents living somewhere nearby, and we haven't been able to really pinpoint whether they were at that time actually living there, and if so, where exactly that was. Well, the death certificate lists her parents' address at Highway 431. Interesting. And then by 88, they had moved to Miller Lane, or at least it looks like they had moved based on the death certificate comparison to the public record address index. So I'm not sure. So, yeah, according to our source, at the time of the accident, Dina's parents were living in a trailer on that southwest corner, which is now the Publix. Okay. Where in relation to that cotton gin do you remember her parents' trailer being? I remember her family's trailer ran parallel with the highway. It it ran north and south, and it was closest to the cotton gin. Was it parallel with old Highway 431? The road that she was happened on. Okay, so actual 431 yeah. instead of old 431. Okay. Parallel north and south with the highway. The other mobile home was first was north, uh, like I said, 150, 200 yards away from the parallel mobile home. So it was further north on that land, and it was um, set up east to west. So if you put them together, it looked like, like an, an L. L. That okay. Sense. Was the cotton gin actually, it was actually at that, like in that corner of that intersection where old Highway 431 was and 431. And then they were on the other side of the old cotton gin. Right. right. Okay. That would actually be more in line with the 1540 square f- feet from her resting spot, actually. But I don't know. Yeah, I'm so a lot confused. of lot of lot of speculation. <laughs> I'm so confused. I know, I know, and I tried to not be confused. I know. Well, you know, sometimes when things are so inconsistent between different documents, I mean, even within just the reports that are We've been, somewhat official. You I know. know, we looked at ancestry, we looked at official documents, we looked mm-hmm. at Alabama Secretary of State, we looked at address history things in those databases. Yeah. 
I mean, we looked up a lot of stuff trying to like pinpoint these addresses and I'm still yeah. sitting here looking at all these different addresses. Yeah. And the only thing that I can come up with is Miller Lane didn't move and we yeah. have that and we yeah. know that it was a mile south. So I just went a mile south from that. Like that's kind of my work. And it's point. pretty close. Yeah. yeah. It really is pretty close yeah. to a mile. So that part I think is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. The rest of it. Mm. And we're going to put the documents that we got from Bonnie. Yeah. That was a copy of the proclamation file over in the Patreon channel too. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah. Because there are a lot of, like we said, it's really graphic. The autopsy paints a very vivid picture and to avoid kind of some of those sensitive areas. Right. That I know if it were one of my relatives, I probably wouldn't want to listen to it if I had not okayed it. Right. But we'll put it over there for anybody that thinks it might be helpful to read through that. I mean, somebody may actually know more about what they're reading than we do. Yeah. Yeah. So in our discussion, we were kind of talking about where the resting point ended up. And, you know, there's a little bit of a discrepancy as far as what people thought, think it is in the reports. Um, We hear that it could be right in front of Arby's. The map looks like it's right in front of the Arby's location. However, the criminalist report does state that it was on the east edge of the highway near the gravel drive of Branham Contracting Company. And that no longer actually exists there. But Sellers, you went and looked and you found it to be up. Where was it? According to the Secretary of State, it's 6481 US 431, which when you drop that in the map, it pops up as the address for Pools Plus, which is between Hampton Cove Equestrian Center and Dunkin' Donuts. Okay. And that's not too far off from where the mark on the ma- on the mm-hmm. handwritten map is. Yeah. It is a little bit further north than that. So I'm not sure, you know, if there were was an additional resting spot or if, you know, the marks were just off a bit. But And that's also... Or if there were two driveways maybe to the construction company. That would be closer to the 1500 that that Mm -hmm. report also referenced as opposed to the 1800 that was initially referenced. That is true. Yep. There were two key pieces of information later shared in the news. First, Dina was completely nude at the time her body was discovered. When they initially reported it, I'm not sure that they actually said that. I think they just said they found a body. Right. It kind of came up a bit later. And I think maybe when they had maybe like the third or fourth article I I read, I think. Yeah. Second, at least one witness was reported as having seen a white semi-truck parked on the side of the road near the accident scene, but apparently that truck wasn't there when the police arrived because it's not noted in the report. Yeah. And in one of the articles, it says potentially an 18-wheeler with a white cab and trailer, and then it says a witness reported seeing a truck that matched that description. So there was at least one person who claimed to have seen this 18-wheeler on the side of the road. Maybe that's where the 1130 came from. I don't know. That couldn't be it either because it says it's an unknown vehicle at that point in time. So whoever reported seeing the 18-wheeler, I'm going to say was not the person that called and reported her body. I wouldn't think, yeah. They've got the 1130 from somewhere. So 1130 to 104, you know, that's an hour and a half. Yeah. That they could have left by that point. For sure, yeah. The details provided in the autopsy report are incredibly graphic. So like we said, we're not getting into those at this time. However, Dr. Joseph Embry, who was the state medical examiner, rendered the following conclusion. Although I'll caveat, we've exerted portions to keep out more sensitive details. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you can find the full reports in our Patreon channel for anyone who believes the information may be helpful. The cause of death of Dina Ann Hubbard is generalized blunt force trauma. The autopsy reveals severe trauma to the head, trunk, and upper extremities. A patterned wound consistent with a tire tread is present in the right lower back and abrasion and laceration is present in the anterior torso with extrusion of the viscera of the left thorax and abdomen. No significant natural disease processes are found. The manner of death is pending investigation. Which is pretty obvious. Right. It was initially reported that Dana's death may have been the result of an accidental hit and run. However, it was later determined that Dana's death had been intentional and the case was characterized as a homicide. Exactly what led investigators to make this change is unknown, but I assume there were probably several factors that played into it. One, Dina was found completely nude after reportedly having been last seen fully clothed. And there's nothing in the documents we've reviewed indicating that her clothing was ever Mm. found. Two, a brown purse and two pieces of tissue paper were located in a gravel parking area roughly 80 feet from the initial bloodstain. And that was interesting in itself because one was very close to the purse. and I wouldn't, was it, did it look like it had been it, They didn't really say, you know, it sounded down. almost like. No, it just said brown purse and yeah, contents. That's all and I kind of really wonder said. if that isn't like, I don't know, either she was holding them or, you know, like initially holding them or if they were in her purse yeah. and they just came out of her purse because they were very light. Third, there were two knives received as evidence on November 24th. One brown leather scabbard containing one fixed blade bone handled hunting knife with a blade measuring four inches by seven eighths inches by one third inches, and one cloth scabbard containing two black metal handle fixed bladed double edged knives with blades measuring three and three quarters inches by one half inches by one half inches. The exact location these were found is not listed in the report that we have, but those yeah, are those huge pretty knives. good sized knives. Yeah, four inches is like, that's pretty significant. And these are not the ones that are folding up, these are fixed handed, yeah. which means you pull them out and the blade's just yeah. there. And that's the blade that measures that, so you have the handle on top of it, yeah. Right. I'll be honest. Those descriptions seem like they would be something that would be pretty specific, that if somebody had seen those before or had seen somebody with those, had them, missing them, whatever, like they seem like that would be pretty easy for somebody to say, hey, I know who has that, Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, but maybe, maybe not. Semen stains were identified on the paper towels found near the purse and roadway, along with blood group substances, but there were no seminal stains found on the vaginal swabs submitted for testing. There were also no blood stains identified on the knives or scabbards yeah. that were submitted. So there's semen on the paper towels, it, but not inside yeah, the vaginal which cavity. Which is interesting. I mean, it, is it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to happen that way, but... The toxicology report indicated there were no drugs detected in Dina's system, although her blood alcohol content was point two. Yeah, and I actually went and looked because we talk about the blood alcohol content all the time. And I was like, I got to find a chart or something that just tells us, you know, it's like where they are on the chart. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not like falling down, but it's pretty drunk. That it's a Mm -hmm. good bit. I mean, they call it sloppy in a lot of the articles that I was talking about. 0.08 is what, two? two Yeah, something like that. It depends on what you're drinking. To tell kind of what you're drinking, what is your tolerance? Do you regularly drink? You know, all of that stuff matters and how your body metabolizes it, how they took it. And I'm sure back in the 80s, it was a different manner, you know, than they take it now. I think they take several different ways. I, I do think they did a blood yeah, sample for this. Yeah, they said liver. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's yeah. still a lot. This one basically said but, 0.2 equals about four beers or four drinks. Well, here's the thing, too. Okay, so she was yeah. seen at her uncle's house earlier in that yeah. evening. Was she drinking when she was there? Was yeah. she sober when she was there? When she left, if she wasn't, if she had not been drinking and she was yeah. sober, then she left there and went somewhere else, which means there are other people yeah, that saw that's her. that's a good point. To know how she got to where she was before yeah. this happened. Like she didn't just get drunk, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, yes, she probably did just get drunk, you know. But she had to do yeah. that somewhere. Yeah, she had to drink somewhere. And they, they don't just come out of thin air. <laughs> right. If you go back and look, I'm not sure there were stores in that area at I that time. I don't think there were from the aerials that I saw. It didn't look like there was much that there, she, to be honest. Yeah, I'd have to go back and look. But the reports that we talk about are, you know, construction things. Yeah, they, the construction yep. company was one. So that would be, that's something I'd be interested in knowing. Because again, when you go back and look at this in the Google timeline and you're going back in time, it's not as built up in the 80s as what it is now. So right. if she wasn't drinking at her uncle's house and there's not a store around there that she would have been able to purchase alcohol at, then she would have had to stop with somebody. Somebody would have had to provide that if she couldn't buy it somewhere. So it would mean somebody saw yeah. her between the time she left her uncle's and the time this happened. Exactly. Yep. And I was just looking again, just to kind of take a glance at the map. And honestly, it looks like country out there. I mean, other than like the contracting company and whatever Mm -hmm. the little building is there on the corner that I'm assuming might be whatever gin is, there's really hardly any buildings out there. So. Right. It's very rural and flat. Unfortunately, it seemed that there were little to no updates in the media after the initial report. That's how it goes, unfortunately. On November 29th, Crime Stoppers put forward their $1,000 reward, but it wasn't until December 6th of 1988 that Governor Guy Hunt announced a $10,000 reward, which was confirmed by the proclamation that Bonnie so wonderfully sent to us. Seems interesting that it would take that long. It's like maybe they had like a second wind in the investigation for a little bit that they would Well, the cover letter to that. Descending that, you know, that far out. Cover letter to the governor's mm-hmm. office was actually sent by Larry Morgan, who was the chief assistant DA right. at the time. And what he said was, so the letter went out on November 22nd. So almost a year, like just shy right. of a year from the accident. And it said all available evidence tends to show that the manner and the cause of her death was homicide. Unfortunately, all leads that investigators had have been exhausted and have not resulted in an arrest warrant being issued. This office concurs with investigators who feel that other evidence would be forthcoming in the event a monetary reward was offered as authorized by the law. I think even more unfortunate is that Dina's family doesn't appear to have been very active in trying to figure out what happened to her. Actually, they don't look like they were active at all, at least not publicly. We've talked about that some people handle things differently. Yeah, Not everybody wants to be in the media, I guess, you know, giving statements and things like that. I mean, it was pretty gruesome. Violent. You would have thought that, you know, the media, the newspapers would have at least asked for a quote, you know, from the family. And especially after um, a reward came out. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't seem at all to be that they were involved in this that I could tell. You know, it all took place. Well, go ahead. Well, a lot of times you'll see, even if they don't have direct quotes, they'll at least have spoken to the family. Um, mm-hmm. one of the reporters yeah. will and they'll you know 
paraphrase things. They're not even mentioned. No, they're not. And even, especially whenever that reward came out, you'd think, okay, you know, how are you feeling about the reward coming out? We're hopeful. Mm -hmm. I mean, this took place right in our front door, essentially. Yeah. But there's not that. Yeah. There's not even a phrase like, you know, we want this reward to come out so that her family can have closure or justice or nothing like that. It just mentions the reward. And I don't, um, maybe it sounds a little bit like we're criticizing how our family handled it. And that's not at all the case, but we talk about all the time that when you have these cases that are unsolved, one of the things that you've got to do is keep their name out there. And the best source to do that is the family. Yeah. It has been said that possibly Dana's lifestyle created a poor relationship with her parents, though this hasn't been confirmed at all either. And with something so horrific, you would usually see something from the family in the media. But we can't judge, and we don't know what the family was feeling or how they dealt with loss. And her parents aren't here any longer to speak out, so we'll just go with, you know, that we just don't know. You know, there could have been a number of reasons why family wasn't publicly involved yeah and sometimes you just have to you know kind of put yourself in their shoes too and Mm -hmm. that's a lot to deal with i mean it it did happen very close to home and to be fair we don't really know who who actually discovered the body it could have been a relative for all we know that's traumatic it is hopefully pushing it back out into the forefront where people will start remembering and maybe somebody new will tell, say something new or, you know, maybe somebody that's already said something will repeat it and it will click and we'll figure out who did this because she deserves whoever did this to her to pay for it. They need to be brought to justice. If you have any information on the death of Dina Hubbard, please contact Huntsville Crime Stoppers at 256 532 7463. Or you could submit an anonymous tip on their website, which we'll include in the episode details. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.